Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway talking with Dr. Larry Arn because that music means the Hillsdale Dialogue has launched. We are in, uh, I think it is week eight of our series on the history of the English-speaking people by William, by Winston Churchill, for which he received the Nobel Prize in Literature. It is, in my view, a must-read book for high school students. And if you haven't read it and you're in college, don't wait. Go get one. If you haven't read it and you're out of college, don't wait. Go order the four volumes. They're cheap. They're everywhere. This thing has probably got tens of millions of copies out there, and they arrive in pristine condition. And it's a wonderful read. And today we're talking about the first British Empire. It's book eight in uh, in the series. It's in volume three. There are three books in each of the volumes. This is book eight. And Dr. Arne, even that term, the first British Empire, will throw some people off. Uh, a couple of segments ago, a couple of weeks ago, you joked uh, about having to brush up on your wall pole. Everybody does. But, yeah. I mean, if you're the first prime minister, you're the first prime minister, right? That's it, yeah. Also, he's not... Uh He's not Churchill's kind of guy or my kind of guy, because what he was was very self-contained man. He he didn't like big things and big ambitions and turbulence. And he's the <laughs> longest. He's the first actual prime minister. They even called him that. It's not a formally created office, by the way. Uh, and he's the longest serving too, twenty years more. And. Uh, and he, he, he made it by keeping things calm. And if you know what we've been talking about here is that what, how, how long did it go on? It, uh, so from Charles I. Oh, my gosh, it's a century. And then it even gets worse, right? Yeah, it's two centuries. And, yeah. and uh, what, <clears throat> you know, uh, Britain is an island power. As he, be, as he writes at the very in the preface of this thing, not widely sundered from the continent, and there are these vast powers on the continent, and these years and the growth of British greatness is in in the context of conflicts on the continent that that were conceived to threaten Britain, and there were several attempts at invasion, the last one being Hitler, uh, and so they you know and so in the middle of all this. See, the, the, the 18th century started out with the war, wars of the Spanish succession and proceed then to what we call over here the French and Indian War. I guess we don't say that anymore. The Cousins War now. Yeah, the Seven Years' War. Uh, it, uh, and that's part of a global conflict. And, uh, you know, Pittsburgh is named for William Pitt, the elder, who was the first of father-son combination, who led each of them for nearly a decade against the French. But, you know, the first, the first shot in, this, in this, this stage of the war between Britain and France was actually fired at Fort Necessity in Pennsylvania, and George Washington was on the scene. 
Yes, he was. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I love the fact that uh, Pitt the Elder died in Parliament or had the, the apoplexy that led to his death while speaking on behalf of the colonies in Parliament. And so we've got the wire puller wall pull contrast with Britain comes up with these amazing people. Pitt the Elder and Pitt the Younger are both amazing people. But Pitt the Elder, it was his way or the highway. He ruled like a tyrant, though he was a man of Parliament. And I think the line Churchill uses it, the crown's gift to Parliament and the people was Pitt the Elder, but the people eventually gift the king Pitt the Younger. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, so these guys see, it. Uh, you know, Ch- Churchill is interested in what we should all be interested in, which is the actions of people, uh, you know, we think history is made by technology. We think a million things. But uh, history, human history, is shaped by human choices. And significant choosing people have a lot more influence than ordinary people. And so Marlborough was such a person on a battlefield and in politics. And the two pits, uh, different sorts of people in some ways, but... They were both appointed to be to to turn Britain into a weapon to win a great world war, and, and they had allies and they had enemies and they persevered and they were statesmen. And remind people of you well because the Kirby Center offers the program, the graduate program in statesmanship. Everything Hillsdale's at hillsdale.edu, and you can find the graduate program on statesmanship. We're tying statesmen with the two pits, not with Walpole. We're tying wire puller. What is it that makes a statesman, Dr. Arndt? Well, uh, uh, we're, we're all required to be statesmen because, uh, go back to one's Aristotle, uh, we think about two different kinds of things. We think about things that change and things that never do. We can only have knowledge of things that never change. It's a higher kind of knowledge. But most of our mental weather is absorbed in changeable things because... The question is, what are you going to do today? Uh, and that answer will uh, will always involve a bunch of stuff you have to do. You got to eat. You got to make a living. You got to do the Hillsdale dialogues, whether you want to or not. Yes. Uh, and uh, and so, how do you calculate all that? How do you pick among the necessities that confront you and shape them into a direction? And most, as I say, most of our mental weather is thinking about that. And the art is to make the, you know, Aristotle says that the truth is found in the circumstances that are presented to you, but not entirely. Also, there's the right thing as it's conditioned by the circumstances. And the good soul, first of all, can see as the has the ability to see events shifting around and understand them, that's an ability that can be cultivated, but also wishes to do the right thing and and will sacrifice to do the right thing. And so that's actually how we form our characters in Aristotle. And then Aristotle in Book 6, Chapter 2 of the Nicomachean Ethics says that if you want to see that at work, Look at statesmen. He names uh, uh, was it? Uh, he names uh, not Thucydides. He names Pericles. Yep. And and uh, uh, and see they're, they're interesting because 
they're making choices that affect all of us, and we too are choosing beings. And so we can understand the pressures they face. And they, you know, they're larger because they concern everybody, but they're, they're like the ones we face. And Aristotle says that you see it, uh, this gift for practical judgment or prudence, as he calls it, that's displayed the most in statesmen, but also in generals, uh, who are kind of statesmen. So, yeah, so Churchill is, what's great about this book, about all of Churchill's writing is, Churchill was himself a statesman, but he was a reflective statesman. And so if if a man like Churchill, who made, you know, uh, Churchill did what both Pitts did, he turned his country into a weapon. Its efforts in the Second World War were simply pound for pound the greatest of any country. And that's because somebody came along who knew how to do that. Have you you ever watched Dr. Arne Foyle's War? Yeah. And and the privations that the average Briton carried. I mean, the soldiers are courageous and the generals are great and Churchill's amazing. But the privations visited on the English people during World War II, it comes through in Foyle's War in ways large and small that I I just don't really appreciate and I love seeing. Yeah, well, uh, I see it. You know, my wife's mother and father were soldiers in the war. And uh, brave, my wife's father, my wife's mother, too. She was a plotter for the Royal Air Force. And they remember those days, remembered, though they're gone now, as the greatest days of their lives. But they were hard, see. And it, it requires something more and in addition to native character and good character and the people and patriotism. It requires leadership. And, you know, Britain wasted, I mean, right now, we're in the years that the locust hath eaten. That's what, that's what Churchill says about the 1930s. And, you know, there's just huge things we need to be doing to save America. America is there now, too. We are and in the just, years that the locust You know, we're in a pitiful shape, and we can't make a good decision. And I myself, when I think about politics, I only think about playing defense most of the time, because... I want the college to be free, and I hope they don't screw it up this month. Uh, Don't go anywhere. We're going to come back and talk about that. We're also talking about the 45ers, because the Scots have got to get one segment in the history of this whole thing, and we're going to do it next. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My guest is Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. If you heard our town hall on Hillsdale Choice, you can go there and find that as well. You can, I will tell you here in the first week of December, that you can also go and get the History of the English Speaking People for uh, a Christmas gift for someone. You can also make a donation to Hillsdale College at the end of the year. You can also get the application for Hillsdale College. Dr. Arn, the 45ers, my favorite i got a lot of favorite lines in this book, but one of my favorite is Churchill on the Scots before they were subdued. Quote, the clans were always ready to fight, but never to be led. End of quote. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It, uh, you see, I mean, uh, it, it's not funny because, you know, there's going to be another referendum to 
Scotland, Scotland remain in the British Union, and that that country is in terrible straits right now. It's you know, if you read this history, you can see how significant are the things going on there right now. Yep. And uh, and so <clears throat> the Scots, I mean, it's just you know, one should go to Scotland. It's way up there, and it's beautiful, and it's cold. And it's hard to get around, and they're their own people, and they, you know, they're the clans, right? Those tight families, isolated by the hills around them, and so they've, you know, they've, they think of themselves as British, yes, but they think of themselves as Scots, and they're united by the blood feuds among the clans. <laughs> so, so it's always true in this in this period of time when France and England are contending for everything, including England, <laughs> that the Scots are often sympathetic to the French. And there are French armies in Scotland more than once. There was one in Scotland when Elizabeth I took over. And so it was, so that's what's going on. And they, and you know, they, they become important for a short while when, uh, they get some French people, and they start marching around in England. And they get Bonnie Prince Charles to come over and raise the Highlands, which are always ready to be raised. And this is the story of Bonnie Prince Charles coming back and losing. And after that, I think they are pretty much in the game. It goes on to write, Churchill only, Churchill can say, the Highlanders have been in the front line of every major battle since, and of course they still are. But they were quite the difficult group of people to be led. Oh, Yeah. You see, and that makes them good soldiers, too. Yes. Stubborn. Uh, you know, my wife is from uh, up close to the border in Lancashire, which is a very fateful place in British history. And so they have the, the Scots have the great New Year's parties. That's their big deal. And so the Russells, a bunch of Scots up there, friends of my wife's family, and there's, you know, 400 of them, and they're all Scottish as they can be. And they, they live in Lancashire, and they have the big New Year's party. And it is just a complete hoot. And, they, and you know, they act like Scots for an evening. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Queen Elizabeth died, a uh, great lady that she was, I am glad that she did it in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. She loved that play, Balmoral. It was her big, you know, she, she was blessed with a few castles. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and a few horses. had <laughs> some horses, you know, a couple of trucks. And uh, she loved it up there. And it's, you know, that uh, there's, a, there's a pretty good movie, The Queen, with uh, Helen Mirren. And my favorite part of it is she goes run around in her Land Rover, you know, an old one, on, on those back roads up there at Belmerle. And she breaks an axle, and she's standing there, and she's got on her barber coat, green coat, and she just, and you know... It's damp and gray, and she's just thriving. She just loves that. She gets out, and she fixes the car, which is what she did in the motor pool during World War II. It's a, well, that's not in here, but the 45ers and the Scots and the true story of Bonnie Prince Charles and what happened to him, it's all there in the history of the English-speaking people. But so is, when we come back, the American colonies. And if you don't understand anything before 1776, or actually before today... 
You need just to begin with Churchill, as I, I will explain. I make my con law students do it. I'll tell you about that in the next segment of the Hillsdale Dialogue on the History and English-Speaking People. Dr. Arn and I will be right back. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Hillsdale.edu. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. We are in, I think, week eight of the History of the English-Speaking People. It is volume three, book eight. I could be wrong, but I think it's week eight. Uh, Dr. Arn, it has to be, because we're doing them by books. Yeah, it's, that's easy, even for a talk show host. Uh, the American Colonies and the War for Independence. He begins, though, I mean, Churchill just, you've got a great scholar up there, William, Wilfred McCready, right? He's written. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's written this great book on American history, which I recommend to everyone. But I make my con law students read one chapter. I may make them read two now. I make them read Churchill on the Constitution because he gets it. And I think I'm going to make them read now the American colonies as well because it explains how the countries drifted apart and why the American colonies were so doggone difficult to get together. Yeah, well, it's, you know, look at, uh, first of all, if you if you can step back from everything you know and look at a map of North America, you've got to ask yourself the question, how in the heck did all that ever get turned into a united country? <laughs> and the answer was a mess. It went on for a long time. <laughs> and, excuse me. We were having a technical difficulty called we, we need to have water on the set. That's our technical yeah, yeah. difficulty. Go ahead. My granddaughter's learned to say, bless you, and she says it all the time now. Oh, good, good. Uh, it, um, uh, so, you know, first of all, America is odd because at the time of the founding, and for much of early American history, the only way to get around was on a river, because hills and woods and made it hard to travel. There weren't any roads. And so that tended to isolate the, the colonies, because... The rivers don't run north and south in America. They run east and west. And so, and then the early, the first settlers, they come over here and they don't know where the devil they're going or what's there when they get there. And they are isolated for a long time. And they live under very condition. Very for a hundred plus years, they're basically on their own. Because Britain, as you mentioned last week, this is maybe the roughest 150 years of the British history, is that they're constantly doing, they're, they're kind of ignoring the American colonies. Well, how would they not, too, see? Yeah, that's true. It's not like they, not malfeasance. <laughs> you can't get there from here. Yeah. And they've got France nearby, right? So Trying to invade, yes. That's right. So it's not, you know, it, it is the miracle, actually, is that all this actually became a world war. Uh, and And it, you know, it's, Turns out the world's not very big. Alas, I wish it was a lot bigger. Uh, but it, it uh, so they settle and they grow for 150 years. That's, you know, because 169 until, until 1763. Uh, that, that's, America begins to become America in the year 1763 at the I, end I, I of the war. I lost my connection there. Okay. And... And that's because fellow feeling began to grow over here because Britain was messing with us now. And it hadn't much. And it was, you know, from their point of view, not even controversial to do it. 
Yep. And they never did get uh, to understand. Uh, it's, if you look at the careers of the two pits, uh, they were both, their careers were consumed in wars with France, and they overlap the American Revolution and the, you know, the, first, the, the French and Indian War and all that. And so they actually have an intelligent understanding of all this. And, you know, it just starts with the fact that, you know, sovereignty is a theory, but where do these people actually live? And what are their lives like? And, you know, one of the inventions of uh, Montesquieu and, and, and others in America and others is federalism. Let people live on their own and let them be commonly ruled about things of common interest, which is the key to American constitutionalism, which Churchill absorbed and believed in very much. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they you, know, we gotta, you know, we got this stuff going on with France, and we spent a lot of money over there, and so we're going to tax them. And that just comes as shocking news to everybody. And they didn't understand forever that it was the British didn't understand forever that that was shocking news. What don't they get? We're providing them protection from the French. Why are they so ungrateful? But what I like the most, Dr. Arne, is that Churchill meditates on the American character, on the American race, and he doesn't mean it in the way that it meant now. But those people who went there and did that end up, as Tocqueville notes, unique. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had on your friend of mine, Paul Ryan, talking about the new book he had, and AEI put out, American Renewal, and the, Amer the number of Americans who are dependent upon the state, it it's just so vast and growing and dangerous, and they have so little margin. And I was reading this chapter at the same time I was prepping for Paul Ryan, and I thought to myself, my goodness, Tocqueville would not know, and Churchill could not imagine this many dependent Americans, because you couldn't be a dependent in the colonies. You died! That's right. And, you know, it's, you know, one of the reasons... You know, I think we're living through a great drama, and in all such dramas, you don't know how they're going to come out. You don't know how this one's going to come out. It looks very bad right now. But the question really is, is there still in us this wish to care for ourselves and be independent, live independently? And one of the reasons I think this stuff that's happening in education is so important is that parents apparently do not want wokeness for their children, which teaches the children that they're slaves. That, that, you know, that's, that's what it means. It means that you are a victim of your color. Everybody yep. is. Yep. And, you know, you went to the Republican Governors Association a few weeks ago, and I want to go back to that, even though we're talking about Churchill, and you, and you preached about education. Doug Ducey has freed every student in Arizona and given them $6,000 to go wherever they want, that's going to happen in Iowa, and I think it's going to happen in Ohio, and Ron DeSantis has done a lot of influence. This is the issue, because we are not going to get back to the American character that Churchill describes here unless we let children go to school. Good ones. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, you know, Doug Ducey was the chairman of this panel that I was on. And, uh, it, you know, it's, he, he, he saw a bright, true light there. And other governors have to, Bill Lee in Tennessee and Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. And they, you know, they, and see, it's more than half their budget. And, if you know, lately I've put the numbers together. It's awesome 
how, how many administrators have been added to the public education system. Well, make this point. You made it last week, but make it again. We can't say this enough. It's a dead weight on children. Seven and a half percent growth in children since the year 2000. Eight and a half percent growth in teachers. Uh, I've since discovered, because James Webb, one of my great accounting professors, has been verifying the numbers for me, 92% growth in the number of administrators. And, and so what do they do, right? They, you know, uh, teach, uh, they're, they're mostly at the district level, it appears. <laughs> and that means they're not working alongside students. And what are they doing, right? And they're, a lot of them are just telling teachers what to do. And you know, that, that, in the Declaration of Independence, in the Bill of Particulars against Georgia Third, he has sent out great swarms of officers to eat up our livelihoods. That's what those administrators do. They eat up budgets for children to learn. That's and right. They don't, and it's just an absolute cancer it, on American education. It also education. violates the nature of the, of the phenomenon of education, right? Because what, what, what you know if you become a teacher is the work is in the student. They have to do the work, and you can't do any of it for them. You can just help them while they do it, and that means you need to be near them. And nothing that happens in K-12 through education is rocket science. In fact, every competent adult knows the equivalent of a high school education. And if you can know it, you can teach it. And so it's not a specialization, right? Now, teaching is a very noble calling, and it's very difficult, but it, it's a craft. I mean, like, like anything that requires right. skill, and you, look, you, you get better at it. If you care about it, I mean, if you don't care about it, by the way, you can't do it. Because it, it's, it's in parts maddening and inspiring. It's the greatest thing in the world, except when it's not. And, and, uh, and so you, the person who's actually in contact with the enemy, as I sometimes say, <laughs> the teachers... <laughs> They should have teachers and parents should be in control of the schools. Yeah. And and so and see we, we think, you know, there's a grand design, right? It's a theoretical intellectual design, the progressive movement. And we can unite the country by making sure everybody learns the same thing in the standard way. And it's a mistake. It's a, it's a grievance. You know, this may be a second American revolution that we're seeing the opening shots in, a revolution that will free children and parents from bureaucracies and centrality and ideology and indoctrination. And it, it's not going to be fought with bullets. It's going to be fought with ballots. But I think we're winning that revolution, Dr. Arn. Well, it's going well in many places, right? And, it's, and the jury's still out. You know, it, uh, you know, one way to put the point is we're waiting for... We need somebody like Pitt, either one of them, somebody like that, somebody like Marlboro in, you know, in war, and somebody like Pitt in politics to come and make sense of it all and start a movement in the contrary direction. And it won't be a, it won't be a partisan movement. It'll be for the nation. It'll rise above partisanship and unite people because of that. But... It will also have to reorder the partisanships because they're incompatible as they are. They are. And, you know, that might be, in terms of starting it out, Doug Ducey, uh, because Arizona did lead the way here. It might be Ron DeSantis, who is in close second, and that it becomes a competition with Iowa 
and Ohio and other people in, in the second American revolution in education, uh, it will be a good thing. I'll be right back with Dr. Arm. We're going to talk about Pithy uh, Elder in India, because even though India is big, uh, we don't have a lot of time for it, so we're going to have to move fast. If I had the time, America, I would tell you about Clive. And if I had the time, I would tell you about the accidental Indian Empire, the second British Empire. But I don't. So I'm going to make Dr. Arn tell you all about India in six minutes. Yeah. So <laughs> India is a long way away. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, uh, sea power uh, is, uh, projecting from Europe. And sea power was just somebody getting on a ship and going somewhere he didn't even know how to get to. And they settled, there were settlements in the west coast of India, and they became trading settlements, and they got mixed up in Indian affairs. And the Indian affairs were complicated because there were these princes, the Mughals, and others. There was no India. There were dozens of, of states. It's sort of like the United States without a central government. And very populous, by the way. Like you know, India is huge. It was back then too, and so they, uh, you know, and in, in, in the middle of the 18th century, uh, there's a man named Clive, and he was a clerk, a clerk. He was a kind of ne'er do well a little bit. He's very ambitious. He got in some trouble with the law. He went to India. He ended up conquering India, yes, <laughs> not having been trained to do it. Yes. And he was stimulated by the fact that there was wars going on and the French were stimulating them and the Germans were stimulating them and the British were involved, maybe stimulating them, and these princes. And the next thing you know, he just conquers the whole place. And that is not, India is not important to the continental struggles in these years that we're talking about, but it's very significant that it gets started then. And it gets started, it's not, uh, you know, let's send a 10 million man army and conquer India. They, India was a, a privately held possession of the British East, British East India Company until into the 19th century. And I want people to know there's a reason why Pakistan and India love cricket. There's a reason. It's because the Brits took that unfathomable game there. And the best players in the world, I would argue, come from Pakistan and India now. And it's because an English common law obtains in India still to this day uh, because the Brits came. They didn't conquer so much as supervise and when they had to take up arms. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's right. It wasn't a blood. You know, there was blood. Yeah. And England, uh, Britain did some terrible things in India. Yes. Uh, Churchill... Uh, the well, the massacre at excuse me I'm, I've got a mental block right now but uh, Amritsar uh, General Dyer opened fire on a bunch of demonstrators and killed many many people some of them trying to get away from the fire jumped in a well and drowned and so uh, Churchill condemned that his, of course his, spe- his speech about Amritsar is a classic in the Churchill genre. And uh, he wanted, he wanted, uh, the general was disciplined and censured. Churchill wanted him 
you know, prosecuted. Uh, that's uh, the policy of frightfulness is not available to the British pharmacopoeia, he said. And it, in that speech, it, did he say that? He did, yeah. And and wow. He, and you know, Ch- Churchill, he uh, he he breaks it down. You know, first of all, Churchill's seen a lot of action, right? He knows that riot control is very diff- difficult, right? And he says one decisive thing is. Were the people armed? And at Amritsar, they were not, right? And so you can't shoot them, right? There's got to be a way to handle it that doesn't involve shooting them. You've got weapons, and they don't. And, and, uh, he, he, you know, and he, he's in full sympathy with keeping civil order, but not that way. Anyway, so yeah, and so British history in India is not, it has many stains in it, of course. Uh, but it's also true that they have a parliamentary system, and it's, the, it's soon to be the most populous country in the world, and the Prime Minister Modi is elected. And that sets a limit. That's a, that's a very strong thing, right? In other words, if you've got to face the people in an election from time to time, there's a limit on what you can do. And, and if, we had, if the Brits had not settled India and imported into it their traditions, right now the United States would be in an even deeper hole because China would still be China, but India is there and they are our ally. And it's because Britain was there first and it was their colony that became Britain's ally and a member of the Commonwealth, though not anymore. Yeah. Uh, do- Dr. Arm, we are out of time for this week. I want to tell everyone we'll be back next week. Book nine, The the Man, Napoleon. And I say that with a frown. I've never liked The Man. Churchill makes me rethink it. Andrew Roberts really made me rethink it. We'll find out what Dr. Arm thinks next week as we take up book nine of the history of the English-speaking people. It's a great Christmas present. All of these are available at HughForHillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu, including our town hall, which we held last week. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to Hillsdale.edu.